This podcast features discussions about finances and money, which are general in nature. For personal advice specific to your circumstances, see a licensed financial planner or relevant qualified professional. Hi, folks. Welcome back to Looking Under the Hood, where we are unpacking the money stuff. I'm Scott Malcolm, and today we're joined by a return guest to the show, Rebecca Tetlow. Now, we've had estate planning extraordinaire Rebecca Tetlow on the pod before. Uh, you can go and check out Season 1, Episode 6, where we talked about the, the ins and outs of estate planning. But we've invited Rebecca back today to start to have a look at and unpack what happens when estate planning goes wrong. So welcome back, Rebecca. Great to uh, have you here again. Thanks for having me back again, Scott. I think last time we spoke, we had so much to talk about, we decided to do it again. This topic is really exciting. I know death is is not often uh, something that we human beings like to talk about, but I think uh, estate planning and just having a game plan around uh, what happens uh, when someone does die or, or to plan for our own death, I guess, is really important. So it's great to have you back, Rebecca. Now, I've been asking guests about an early happy money memory, but as a returning guest, I'd love to hear about a more recent happy or fun money memory that you might have. Look, I have a four-year-old daughter who loves to do imaginative role-playing and I seem to spend a lot of my Saturday afternoons at the moment playing shop or playing cafe. She's always the shopkeeper and I have to pretend to be a variety of different characters coming to her shop. And it's really fascinating and quite fun to see how a four-year-old views what are everyday commercial transactions. So playing shop these days usually involves checking in at the front of the cafe and then when it comes time to pay and she makes up whatever number it is that I owe her, um, rather than giving her coins or anything that resembles money, I instead have to pretend to tap my watch or phone or something pretending to be a device and say beep. Wow. I love that, the playful essence of that. But again, we've, we've talked about on the podcast before how we do as little humans start to pick up the behaviours and sort of messaging around money really early. So that's uh, a really great story. And how, how is her uh, her costings on uh, on things in the shop? Is it, uh, is it extraordinary or uh, surprising? Well, she likes to show us how big the numbers are that she knows. So um, there's a fair bit of inflation going on in her shop at the moment. <laughs> I love it. Well, look, global inflation's a bit of a pressure, so maybe just a bit of bit of forecasting in uh, in her future as a, a financial analyst or something. But uh, no, that, that's a great story. Thanks for sharing that, uh, Rebecca. T- today's episode, we're talking about what happens when estate planning goes wrong. You do a lot of work in that estates dispute space, and so what what does that actually mean? Like, what what happens if a, an estate is disputed? The most common situation in which an estate ends up in dispute is what's called a family provision claim, a type of claim that someone can make if they have been left out of a will or feel that the amount that they've received under a will is unfair or not enough. The other types of disputes that I am sometimes involved in um, might be disputes about the validity of a will. So not about whether the contents of the will are fair, but instead about whether the person making the will had the capacity to make the will. So, for example, if 
they were suffering dementia or cognitive decline at the time that they made the will and there's serious questions about whether they knew and understood what they were doing. Or if there was someone who might have been involved and influential in making the will, um, so there's questions or suspicious circumstances about whether the will accurately reflects the person's intentions. There's also a number of other occasions where people find themselves in dispute with an estate or where they need to make an application to the court to clarify the way in which an estate needs to be administered. So sometimes that's because a person has made a will themselves that hasn't been properly signed or witnessed and an application needs to be made to approve that will um, under what's called an application for an informal will where even though it hasn't been signed or witnessed properly, the court confirms that the person intended that document to be their will. I've had a number of scenarios where the person has lost uh, the original of the will and applications need to be made about um, whether that will still stands or whether probate can be granted to a copy of, of a will or where there's questions about how the will should be interpreted if the language isn't clear. Yeah, wow. And I imagine that some of, like with some of those things, especially modern day with electronic documents and things, has that changed how things can be challenged? Because I guess the the legal language, I, I saw a will many years ago now that someone had drafted um, probably in the, um, I don't know, 60s or 70s, and it had all this really old but funky language in it. So are there things in there that might come up if people have drafted their own will and, I don't know, made it poetic or uh or told a story, or, or are there limitations, again, with, say, electronic versions of documents these days that can cause uh, a dispute or cause us to go down that path? Uh, sadly, I haven't come across a will that's been written in poetic form. I, I hope I one day do come across <laughs> a will in haiku form or, or something of the sort. I suppose with technology, there are circumstances in which people have written their own documents and, and stored them as notes on their phone or um, as Word documents on their computer that haven't been signed or witnessed and there can then be disputes about um, whether that the person intended that document to be their will. Yeah, okay. And so there's no, like with regards to electronic versions and things these days, it's really just around whether that's the, the, the formal document that comes out at the end of the day as, as seen as the last will and testament of that, of that person. For a will to be valid, it needs to be signed by the, the person making the will and witnessed by two adults. And the person needs to know and understand what their will means. And so if the document hasn't been signed um, and if it hasn't been witnessed by two people, then it's not a valid will until the court approves it. Um, in the times of COVID, there have been some changes made to the law about documents being witnessed electronically and different states have taken different uh, approaches to whether documents including wills can be witnessed by a video conference um, but there still is that core requirement that a will is witnessed by two people and signed accordingly. I guess some of these things that we're talking about now, are, and I've probably gone down a rabbit hole with the the administrative and life <laughs> admin side of things, but obviously then the emotional elements as well. When we when we go through that process, and I know we're human beings. I think we talked about it in in episode six when we had you on before, like that. The, the emotions that come up when someone is grieving or, or someone has died, I, I imagine that can cause sort of issue and and create disputes. So there. 
things that when people can claim, like again, probably heard about stories in the past where people have tried to claim against a will because of a new partner or because that they've been cut out of a will totally. But that that emotive element and, and the human element of it, I imagine that's a big area as well. Yeah, it's fair to say that people who are grieving, that those emotions can often play into their, their decision-making about how they view an estate. In terms of the, the circumstances in which claims are made against an estate, the law is pretty clear that there's only certain people who can make a claim against the estate. Interestingly, that list of people who can make a claim varies between each state and territory. But one common factor is that a partner is a person who can make a claim against an estate if they haven't been left with enough and children of the deceased person can make a claim. One of the things that varies between different states and territories is the status of stepchildren and whether or not that they can make a claim against a step-parent's estate. In some jurisdictions like the ACT, a stepchild can only make a claim against a step-parent's estate if they were dependent at the time of death. In other states like Queensland, a stepchild can claim against a step-parent's estate and in New South Wales, it's only if they were dependent and lived as part of the household at some point in time. Um, so it's often in the context of a blended family that we do see family provision claims made most often. Um, and that's often because a deceased person had been in a situation of balancing how to look after a new partner and how to look after children from a previous relationship. Family provision law was initially introduced um, to help widows who were left in need uh, if their partners didn't provide for them. So that was the original basis for the law. And sadly, I do still see situations where a surviving partner is left in significant financial need where they don't receive enough from the estate of their partner. Yeah, wow. And I guess especially with blended families, with divorce, and, and that uh, what you just said before around um, a, a partner of, of a person. So uh, I'm imagining that that isn't just... Um, I know a, a one-night stand who uh, had, uh, I know, recently uh, partnered up with someone. Is it, so to be a, a partner who can make a family provision claim, you need to either be married to the person, uh, have been in a de facto relationship for at least two years, or to have been in a de facto relationship and had a child with the person. So if it's less than two years but you had a child together. That's the case for who can make a family provision claim. But one of the interesting things about a state law is that there's no time limit for a partner to make a claim on superannuation death benefits. So if the deceased was the member of wow. a superannuation fund, for example, an, an industry fund, and did not leave an, a binding nomination on their super, then the, the super fund will want to know who are the people in that deceased person's life and whether or not they had a de facto partner at the time of their death, and there's no time limit. And so I've seen scenarios where a young person had been living with a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend for a short period of time, basically share housing together, uh, but where that girlfriend or boyfriend has claimed to be a, a de facto and has received the, the deceased super, um, which results in their their parents or siblings missing out. 
Yeah, wow. And I know it's some, sometimes your Hollywood eyes uh, some of these stories and think, oh, yes, okay, it's going to be uh, a, a legal battle in a court scene. But uh, I imagine it's probably not as uh, not as glamorous uh, as that sometimes. Rebecca, on, on that front, I guess scenario uh, that, that could get a bit interesting and, and probably a bit, uh, I don't know, crazy on the, the legal sense as well is if someone's repartnered after being a, a widow um, and then there's potentially that dispute between their adult children and the, the partner that they've been married to or, or living with. So how do you handle those sort of disputes or how can those be, be managed? Yeah, it's really tricky for, for people who uh, might have built up wealth with a former partner and want to ensure that that wealth goes to the kids from a previous relationship while also managing how to look after the new partner who they, they do have obligations to provide for. From a planning point of view, if I was talking to that person during their lifetime about how to structure their will, then I'd spend time really unpacking some of the, the, the details about the relationship and the family history to understand where is the wealth come from, how are the family finances in the, the new relationship structured, to what extent is the new partner dependent or reliant on on them to have their needs met um, or have they really kept their finances separate. I'd also unpack how their assets are held and so um, I know what would be dealt with by the will and what assets might be passing either to the to the new partner or to the kids in the previous relationship outside of the will. So I'd, I'd need to understand what's happening with super nominations or, or jointly owned property to know how the, the whole estate plan is fitting together. And then I'd also be really keen to understand um, if I'm doing planning for someone about what are their priorities, what are their objectives. I sometimes sit with people who, who say, it matters most to me that this money that came from my first relationship goes to my kids. And I know that my, my new partner has enough and, and, and they'll be fine on their own. I sometimes sit with people that say, it's most important to me that my partner isn't left in a dispute um, and I want to do everything that I can to minimise the risk of, of tensions and, and angst and disagreements after my death. My kids are adults. Mm. I know they're fine and I just want to look after my partner. And sometimes I sit with people that are really just honestly trying to balance all of that up. Hopefully with careful planning and advice, there will be a way to set up the will and the estate plan in a way that achieves that person's objectives with minimal disharmony in their family. I usually find that if I'm able to talk to um, the couple together and if they agree on a plan together about how things will be divided if one of them passes away, that's usually a good indicator that things won't end in dispute, but of course that's not always the case. If I'm advising uh, after someone has passed away and if I'm talking to the surviving partner about how the estate is divided and whether they have been left with enough and if they're considering making a claim against the estate, then some of the factors that would go into advising them would be if they made a family provision claim, the court looked at a whole range of factors including the length and history of the relationship, 
the degree to which they had combined their finances and, and the degree to which the widow, or uh, I'm making an assumption there, the widow, um, but the degree to which the surviving partner was dependent on the deceased to um, maintain their lifestyle. Um, and that mm. will get weighed against the, the competing needs of any other beneficiary. So what are the circumstances of the children from the previous relationship? Are they in financial need? If a court was deciding a family provision case, there's a really strong emphasis on who is in financial need, who should the deceased have provided for to make sure that they were properly provided for. Yeah, and it's often one of those fascinating sort of trust games as well because uh, especially if people have repartnered and they've got adult children, if people have gone through that estate planning process and either left a, a large provision to their their blood children, if that makes sense, and then a, a smaller amount to their um, their new partner. I imagine that that creates a lot of complexity then um, for those potentially adult children if they think, oh, yes, okay, well, this is our, our family asset. But it sounds like the court actually says, well, actually, we've got to make sure that that um, other person who was in the relationship is actually protected and supported. Yeah, that, that's right. That, that um, you know, while the court does want to uphold the wishes of the person making the will and, and wants to try to uphold the, the wish to see family wealth passed to the children of the first relationship, they also are interested in making sure that surviving partners are looked after. Now, of course, sometimes the, the scenario is, is flipped around and where um, a, a second partner comes to receive all or, or, or the bulk of the wealth from, from their partner. And in that case, adult children can sometimes understandably feel seriously aggrieved that the wealth that had been built up by their parent has passed to the partner and that they don't have any certainty or security that they will see any of that wealth at the end of the day. If it's been an mm. outright gift by the deceased parent to to their surviving partner, then in most cases, there's nothing that stops that surviving partner from um, spending the money, from giving the money away to their to their own children or to the people that are important to them, or that prevents them from making a new will, whether that's to leave it to their kids or the cat's home or or what have you. So understandably, children, uh, adult children are often um, feel very vulnerable in that circumstance of seeing significant wealth go to a step-parent, and especially if they are in a one of the, the states that doesn't allow stepchildren to claim against a step-parent's estate. And in that case, often the children are left weighing up, do they make a family provision claim against the estate and, and essentially go into that against their step-parent to try to get um, as much of a share of the estate as they can because that might be their, their only opportunity to receive something from the estate. Yeah, wow. So it sounds like once um, yeah, once it's gone to the step-parent, so to speak, then an adult child may not have any, any recourse um, on their, their parent's estate 
That's right. Yeah, again, comes back to that trust game. I've, I've spoken to a lot of clients over the years where uh, blended family and they'll say, oh, yes, well, we want this to go to the, like you can use the asset, but afterwards it gets divided then equally between all our all our children. But I guess there is nothing then stopping uh, whoever the, the surviving spouse is or the last one to, to, to die, so to speak, from changing that will again and saying, well, actually now it goes to just my children as opposed to, all eight of them. That's right. Yeah, that that's a significant risk, and, and I'd say a significant concern of a lot of people that that are in a, a blended family or or a second relationship. Yeah, and and how do how do we manage that? So if, if obviously we're talking about all the things that can possibly go wrong, but is there a way that or a strategy that we can plan for to, to scenario that and say, oh, how do we how do we avoid this happening? Uh, look, uh, unfortunately, there's no one-size-fits-all approach to this, and it really um, is a matter of getting in and unpacking the dynamics of this particular family to w- workshop through and road test the different options and strategies to then work out, well, which one's going to, to fit the best or, or which one's going to be the least uncomfortable. Some people, as you've mentioned, sometimes couples in a second relationship say, well, I'm going to give everything to my partner so that they, you know, have flexibility and autonomy to do what they want after I've died, but that I trust that on their death, they will leave in place a will that divides their assets equally between their kids and my kids. That solution by far is the, the simplest, but it does come with the risk. What if the surviving partner spends it gives it away, if the surviving partner repartners or changes their will, whether out of spite or, or otherwise, and, and cuts the children from the first relationship out. So that strategy comes with some risk and it probably depends on mm. um, some personal factors like the character of, of, of the partner, the relationship and history of between the partner and, and the children from the first relationship. And sometimes the client is really the only person that can make that assessment about whether that strategy is going to be workable. Mm. Some of the other options to look at include, are there enough assets to allocate some funds to the children from the first relationship and some funds to the partner? And if there are enough assets to go around, that's usually the best way to make sure that everyone gets something. For clients that want to make sure that everything's fair down to the last down to the last dollar, sometimes it might not be possible to, to achieve that. But in my experience, if you're able to identify some assets to go to the children on the first death, so that you know with certainty that they've received at least that amount, and some assets to go outright to the partner so that you know that they are receiving at least that amount of assets to to help them live on, then it's a way of making sure at least they've received that much. One of the other strategies that I sometimes talk about with clients is leaving assets to the partner in a trust for them to use during their lifetime, but that upon their death, those assets must go back to the children from the first relationship. And sometimes that could also be known as, if we're talking about a, a property, the family home, sometimes that is referred to as a life estate or a right to reside, which says my partner can use this house or my share of this house to live in for the rest of their lives 
and upon my death, that pro- the value of that property goes back to my kids. And on paper, it looks like a good strategy because it's a way of looking after the needs of the survivor but also ensuring that the, the capital um, and the, the core value of that asset goes back to the kids. But I, I, I caution my clients to think really carefully about that because it's often the devil is in the detail and um, in my experience, it's often that the surviving partner or the children end up really unhappy with that arrangement in practice. There's often questions or tensions around, well, who pays for the outgoings of the property? Who keeps it maintained? Is it being maintained well enough? If the surviving partner doesn't end up with any of the value of this property at the end of the day, well, they might not be interested in spending money to put a new coat of paint on it or to repair things that are starting to to have wear and tear. Um, and, and sometimes the surviving partner is really uncomfortable with the idea of the adult children looking over their shoulder to see if they're doing things appropriately. And sometimes they, you know, we really need to unpack, you know, what kind of flexibility does the surviving partner have, for example, to rent out the property if they don't want to live there or to sell that home and purchase another one if they want to move into state to be closer to their own children or to downsize or to go into more age-appropriate accommodation. And so it's often those details that can still lead to tensions and discomfort in the estate if anyone is unhappy about that arrangement. Now, how many of these could be avoided if people just had those open, honest conversations with family and were able – because it can be hard. Like if there's a blended family, it can be hard having those chats with with adult kids or creating the space to do it or even just having the time to do it because, oh, yeah, I'll do that later and all of a sudden – life happens. Um, but yeah, how many of those could potentially be avoided with, with that communication or with, with discussion with family? Well, I'd be an idealist if I thought they could all be solved through <laughs> good planning um, because I know, you know, human nature uh, that, that sometimes there might be members of the family that, that are going to be unhappy no matter what or, or family conundrums that can't be solved. But in my experience, a lot of those situations could be solved through honest and courageous conversations about what would you want to do if I died? Would you want to stay in this house? Do you think you'd want to live elsewhere? How much do you think that you would need? What are your expectations about what I leave to you? What's fascinating about this role is that each couple tends to have different approaches or values when they think about their relationship and money. I might add that sometimes members of the couple have different views from, from each other. Definitely, very, very much so. <laughs> sometimes what we assume a person might want or expect is different from the reality. And in having a conversation, couples might very quickly be able to strike out some of those options. Sometimes I, I find when I talk through that option of a, a life estate or right of residence, a member of the couple might be very quick to 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 identify, do you know what? If that was me living in that arrangement, I wouldn't like that. I don't want your kids looking over my shoulder. And being able to, to discount that as an option for that couple means they can then explore and start to problem solve 
okay, we're working with the building blocks that we have, which are these assets, then what's an arrangement that we can come up with that we can live with? Yeah, it's a big thing. And I think especially the aging population and people living longer as well. I had a, a client in uh, just this last week and, and he's in his 80s, but uh, his wife sadly passed away five years ago and he's just moving into now a, an aged care arrangement and uh, obviously independent living and all those sort of things. But I made the, the joke with him that he's going to be hot property. Uh, <laughs> and um, I, I did joke with him and said, oh, look, just repeat after me, binding financial agreement. Um, <laughs> really interesting that that you highlighted that scenario of um, people in their 80s repartnering and I think that really highlights that we shouldn't paint all blended families with the same brush because you know the the considerations for a couple in their 80s that each have their own wealth who plan to to live out the rest of their days together and who where their children are in their 50s and 60s and, and well independent that's going to be a very different equation than, for example, a blended family that has teenage children that you know that are doing week about in in their house together, or a blended family where the survivor might very well live for another thirty odd years. And so, I, I really like that you highlighted that things might look different depending on at what stage they enter in that relationship and how they plan to manage their money? Um, Are they keeping their respective assets separately all along or are they pooling their money in together and, you know, both combining their assets into the same family home, living off each other's pensions, et cetera, et cetera? So, and look, Beck, we, we do keep this, try and keep this episode short and sweet, but again, we could talk about this stuff all day. Are there elements there that we, that we haven't touched on, especially around superannuation with, with blended families uh, coming into play? Any comments on that? Oh, look, super is such an important issue to consider in any blended family situation, uh, well, really in any estate planning situation, because super is not automatically dealt with by a will. And it's something that is, is not well understood by members of the public that super may or may not form part of your estate depending on the type of fund it is, depending on whether you have a nomination in place. Super kind of sits off on the side from an estate and depending on the type of fund, you you might not even have a say over who gets your super. So one of the the common features of um, living in Canberra where I do is that a lot of my clients are members of defined benefit schemes like the CSS or PSS or military super. And with those schemes, there's no ability to nominate who gets your super. It's simply a case that the rules of the scheme say if you have an eligible spouse at the time of your death, then your eligible spouse will receive all or or most of your superannuation entitlements. Um, That can come as a real shock and surprise for many of my clients, but especially clients that are in second relationships and had been working hard all of those years, making their contributions to the PSS, and all of a sudden realise that their significant asset can't be gifted to their children from a, um, who might now be adults and, and independent. With other funds, regular accumulation style funds, it often comes down to, is there a nominated beneficiary and is that nomination a binding nomination now super um, can't be given just to anyone super can go to a spouse 
to children, to people who are dependent on you, or you can nominate your estate. And if it's paid to your estate, then it will be dealt with according to the terms of your will or according to the rules of intestacy. But sometimes people's well-intentioned estate planning can all fall over if they haven't properly considered their super or if they've, only, if they've not left a nominated beneficiary or only a non-binding nomination, in which case the trustee of the super fund will decide how super is divided amongst the family. Yeah, and we've talked about the defined benefits uh, on, on the podcast before as well, and it is such a, a big space. And as you say, it's so important to understand the, the ins and outs of, of how all that comes together. And again, in, in keeping us uh, on track today, I think we might get you back to talk a little bit more because we haven't really dived into the um, the disputes of space when, um, I don't know, the, the pr- procedural nature of it and, and the actual mechanics of how that might um, might happen as well. So we might get you back to, to talk a bit more about that if you're happy to do that. Rebecca, that'd be great. Would love to. Thanks, Scott. Just to, to give a quick uh, wrap up on that, um, make sure you've got your admin in order and go check out episode six as well with Rebecca to really hear about the ins and outs of the, the people involved in your estate planning and uh, make sure you understand the context of that. And look, especially with these blended families, making sure that if you do repartner, remarry, um, that getting the right legal advice is so crucial to really structure your estate plan in the, the long run. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed the episode today. And again, go and rate us on Apple Podcasts and we'll see you next time. 